listening to the Rosenfeld Review. I'm Lou Rosenfeld, uh, and I'm so happy to have as my guest someone whom I've known for a long time and have been working with for quite a long time. Is it really 11 years we've been working on this book, Caroline Jarrett? It really is 11 years, Lou. It's well, gone in a flash. So uh, time flies. Uh, <laughs> I'm so happy, though. Caroline, um, it, it, her book, uh, uh, Surveys That Work, is coming out uh, this summer in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, those of you in that other hemisphere can, can figure out the timing for yourselves. Uh, and uh, we're delighted because it has been a long time. Um, sometimes things take a while. Uh, I always describe books as the slow food of content. Uh, but uh, this is quite tasty content. If you don't know, Caroline, um, um, we sometimes argue about how to describe her, and maybe we'll we'll bicker a little bit right now. She says she's the form specialist. So Caroline wrote a book called Web Forms That Work, and uh, what, what was that, about 12 years back? No, that came out in 2009, and it's called Forms That Work, not Web Forms oh, That Work. Oh, my apologies. So um, I guess I got Web Form Design, that other book, on my mind. Right, and one of the fun things about um, Lou Rubliski, uh, Luke Rubliski's uh, book um, about designing web forms is that um, when people learn that I'm interested in forms design or that I advise people on forms design, they often recommend Luke's book to me, um, which, is, which is always a pleasure because, um, in fact, Luke very graciously um, asked me to contribute um, a short um, perspective to his book. So um, I actually have uh, a piece called People Before Pixels, which comes in his book. And the books, those two books complement each other, really, because uh, Luke's book is more about interaction design, mm -hmm. and my whereas my book really considers the spectrum of forms design, which I would talk about um, what we now call service design, uh, content design, and interaction design. Um, so it's a sort of has a slightly different perspective, but um, I guess I really should uh, not talk too much about Luke's book. But they're both worth buying still, even today. There's not been a lot of other books on forms that have come out since Oddly. Then. But, you know, I, I, I guess where I want to bicker with you or challenge you a bit is to describe yourself as a form specialist feels very limiting given that, uh, well, you've just uh, wrapped up a, a, a really great book on survey design. Well, I describe myself as the form specialist rather than a form specialist because there's not a lot of us about, you know, there's very few people who really focus on forms. Um and uh, I've always found it absolutely fascinating. I got interested in forms and they've never let me go. But uh, that kind of led me almost accidentally into the world of surveys because I would say that my bookshelf, I've bought every book I've ever been able to find on forms design. And it comes to maybe 10, mm -hmm. perhaps 15. And I can assure you that there are probably 10 or 15 really good books on survey design published every year. Mm -hmm. If you try and keep up, there's entire conferences, you know. So, for example, I've, I've had the privilege of going to the European Survey Research Association conference a couple of times. Fantastic conference. There'd be 600 papers on survey research at that conference. Um, 
and uh, that's uh, that's every couple of years, um, and that's just one small segment. So there's a massive quantity of survey literature. Well, uh, I guess the difference between all those other books and and your book on survey design is that um, you know all those other people love surveys, and I'm not so sure that you do. Uh, you know, I you you found my hidden secret. <laughs> I. I uh, I actually remember a conversation with you some while ago where you talked me out of having a chapter saying, please don't do a survey or kill surveys or something. And it's not that I don't like surveys. I think that I've actually become much more positive about surveys over the course of writing the book. You know, I did a lot of research with user experience specialists and other people who do surveys when I started it. And I found that a survey is an important method that user experience people ought to know as one of the things that we can do. Um, we get better at them with practice. You know, if you have to do a single survey and it's a massive big one, that's a big ask to do a difficult method once. It's much better to do little ones, get used to them, get the feel of the method, really practice. And then also so many of our colleagues and clients will think that research is surveys that that they'll say we want to do some research and they think they're going to do a survey so i don't want to put people off doing surveys i want people to understand that you can do a great survey if you're prepared to put some effort in it's not an easy method it's not regarded sometimes as a cheap method and sure it's cheap to do a bad quick survey it's sometimes expensive to do a bad long survey as well mm-hmm. Um, but having those the ability to do surveys there um, is really helpful. And I've, uh, I've found that, you know, encouraging um, colleagues and clients to consider a survey alongside another method, in particular, to encourage, you know, one of the things I first learned about surveys is that the survey methodologists would never survey first and interview second. They'd always interview sur- first and survey second. And if you buy the book just for the diagram where I explain that, that could be a really worthwhile thing because sometimes they try some interviews and they realize they already have the answers to the questions. They don't need to do the survey at all. So it's about having another method, a complementary method available to us, really. Well, well, that point about interviewing seems seems really important because at minimum, uh, doing that type of interviewing seems like it would give you the raw material for the conversation that you're ultimately having with an audience to use a, a very uh, uh, overgeneralized term for them. But um, you, you know, I always have felt like a survey when framed as part of a conversation seemed to make sense to me and adds that context. And is that how you see it? Is it a, is it a, like a, a form of conversation or a stop along the way as part of a broader conversation? Absolutely. I mean, I, I in when I talk about forms, I talk of forms about as of forms as being a conversation with your users, really, that the conversation of forms, that question and answer sequence lies at the heart of forms and surveys. And that really, I mean, my deep, dark secret is that the bit is the bit I'm most interested in. I'm interested in the content design of that conversation in why you're having the conversation. Um and, you know, Ginny Reddish, whose book about um, content design is called Letting Go of the Words and is my mentor um, and someone I know that you deeply respect as well, Lou. Uh, she's 
even accredited me with um, giving her the idea of using the conversation because my book on forms was based around forms as a conversation uh, and she even said that that's where she started really thinking about um, content as conversation on websites more generally although I'm sure she had many other reasons because Ginny is a genius mm-hmm. um, but yeah so the it's the conversation aspect of the survey which is really my favorite part is getting that question and answer sequence to be something that is useful in terms of gathering data but something that the people who are responding to the survey really want to engage in and and the real difference between what we think of in forms design and survey design is in survey design crafting the questions and and building the questionnaire is like two steps out of the seven steps that i talk about in my book you know so to do a really good survey you have to encounter some of the more frightening things like sampling which is not my natural habitat at all but we do have to think about where are those conversations originating with and with whom and how many and how do we find the right people to have them with in order to get robust survey data out at the end so i've had to kind of tackle some areas that um i thought i knew about but i had to learn a lot more about than i expected in order to be able to write a book um so it's been quite a voyage of discovery for me um, to really get to grips with some of those ideas, or at least get to grip with them, grips with them enough to feel that I could help um, people who read the book to get started. And if they want to go further uh, routes into finding more stuff, if they wish to. Well, I mean, that's why you all listening should buy the book, because Caroline's done all that work for you. Uh, and it'll take a lot less time. Uh, for you to uh, to learn some of those things about areas like sampling, but Caroline, getting back to um, uh, the, the the frame of conversation and how surveys fit within it, the, I understand the issues of sampling. You have to be talking to the right people and you have to be asking them the right questions. Obviously, the thing that always confuses me a bit is what about getting them to set aside what they're doing and sit down and um, in a sense, be interrogated, like, all right, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you this survey. I expect you to work on this survey. I expect you to pay attention to it. It's my questions for you. And until I'm done asking you these questions, I expect you to stick with it and not walk away. I hope you're not going to walk away. H- how do you create that sort of, or, or identify the point at which the person taking the survey is ready to give you permission to give them the survey and to have their undivided attention? Well, um, I I drew on a a concept um, from another hero of the world of surveys, Don Dillman. I was always very impressed with his books. I found them very easy to read for survey methodology books. He's still around, fortunately. He's still producing a new edition of his book from time to time. Um, And in the first one I read in the series, he talked about why people respond to surveys. um, And he drew on a a sort of concept called social exchange theory, which is uh, not his idea, but the way he applied it to surveys, I found very interesting. And I've kind of slightly simplified it, adapted it a bit. But I talk about Uh, underlying trust. Does the person trust you enough to want to answer your questions? 
And within that spectrum of trust, there's a balance between perceived effort and perceived reward. So the perceived effort is you can reduce the perceived effort by doing some good design things, by creating, choosing an interesting topic, um, by not wasting the person's time with irrelevant questions. And the perceived reward is, well, what, what's in this for me? What will I get out of it? And people will often think of doing a survey. They'll reach rather unthinkingly for the prize draw. Oh, if we promise that you can be entered in a draw for an Amazon gift card, then of course they'll want to do the survey. But but people don't believe they're necessarily going to actually be a draw um, and they don't think they're going to win it anyway. So that sort of reward has very little power. But if you can couch the survey invitation appropriately, you're one of a small number of people we specifically want to hear about, about this individual issue that is interesting for you and you trust us enough to do something useful with the answers, then they will answer. But what we're all finding these days is that every time you buy something, every time you, well, in the olden days when we used to go buy, you know, take airplane trips, remember them? They used to happen in the olden days. I believe they might be coming back actually. Uh, you know, you couldn't get on a flight with being asked a survey about it. We're being bombarded with trivial routine invitations mm -hmm. for trivial routine transactions and people get trained into ignoring the invitation. So response rates to those sorts of surveys are dropping, dropping, dropping all the time. And we have to be pretty imaginative now about how to cast our invitation and what to do in order to be a little bit sufficiently different, really that people think, oh, there is there's something in this for me. You know, somebody I want to help or it's not going to be that much effort. And really my favourite example is that we already know people, here's my pro tip, we already know that people don't want to ask, ask answer a survey. So when you pop up an invitation, will you answer a survey on this website, you will know, guaranteed most people will add to the knowledge that no, they don't want to answer your survey. So at least pop up a question they want to answer as the first question. You already know they don't want to answer the survey. But if you ask them something else, you know, like, do you prefer to eat fish on a Tuesday? They might just be surprised enough to actually answer. Yeah. So um, one of the, the top ones, actually, is um, why did you visit this website today? And mm -hmm. people often know that and they're often well, they're slightly more willing. I'm not saying response rates to any pop-up invitation on a website are very good, but you've got slightly more chance of getting some good data. Well, that lines up with the the sort of smaller, lighter surveys that essentially is where you're sipping at the data. Exactly. So I mean, you, I, you... exactly. Yeah. I mean, keeping that conversation, you know, keeping that conversation you're talking about, don't interrupt people with a massive... I want to bore you to death with 40 minutes of questions, just ask them something little and then they might want to carry on talking to you or they might want to talk to you again the next time rather than like, well, that was a waste of my time and effort. I'm never coming back to that boring mm -hmm. survey person, you know, keep it light. Um, we're going to take a break. Um, and when we get back, we're going to talk about an octopus. Cool. Does that sound like uh, something you want to hear about? I think so. Stick around for the break. We'll be right back 
You're listening to the Rosenfeld Review, and I'm uh, enjoying this conversation with my guest, Caroline Jarrett. Be right back. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you want more, not only do we have a whole bunch of podcasts in our archive, but we have something that's very current, very alive, and very engaging for groups. And that is our communities. Rosenfeld Media runs a variety of communities that meet on a monthly basis for video conferences on a variety of topics near and dear to UX people, ranging from enterprise experience to advancing research to design and research operations. I want to encourage you to join one of our communities. Again, it is free by going to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. Not only will you get a monthly video conference that you can listen in on and participate in, ask questions and so forth, we'll give you access to the recordings. And uh, for some of those communities, we're talking about dozens of recordings with really interesting presenters and facilitators. You'll also get a newsletter. You'll get access to an advice columnist. Yes, we actually are providing advice columnists for each community. And finally, if you're interested in our conferences, our communities correspond to our conferences. So you will be the first to know when programs, uh, when programs go live, uh, when tickets go on sale, and by the way, most of our conferences sell out, and other good things about our conferences, such as uh, when the scholarship applications open up. So go to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. You're going to find something that's free, something that's interesting, and it's a great opportunity to find your tribe as well. We'll see you there. Welcome back to the Rosenfeld Review with my guest, Caroline Jarrett. And I threw out a word just before the break, octopus. What's about, what is it about this octopus and, and surveys, Caroline? Well, the octopus came about because I discovered that a central concept in survey methodology these days is something called total survey error. And I started reading it in a book called Surveyor and Survey Costs by Robert Groves, who's a very distinguished and interesting survey methodologist. And it's one of those books where I kind of read it so you don't have to. I mean, it's it's a tough read. Um, but he was investigating different concepts of surveys, and that led me to finding out about total survey error, which looks at all of the possible things that can go wrong in creating a final statistic for the output of your survey. So um, if you think about what's generally called national statistical institutes, and, and in the US that you have lots of them, but um, the two most famous ones are the Census Bureau and the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Mm -hmm. They're producing statistics on which important government decisions and many other decisions by non-governmental parties are all based. And so they need those to be robust. And so there's a lot of considerations that go into trying to end up with a good solid statistic in the end. And um, I discovered that this was very much a core concept. And uh, I learned more and more about it and found a book um, on survey methodology with uh, Groves himself as a lead author, and many other heroes of uh, survey methodologists, uh, my favorite survey methodologists were co-authors and it has a very famous diagram of total survey error 
and I thought I'm that I've really got to get this in the book and then I tried and I thought about it and I thought hmm and I and I remembered that a friend of mine who's called Christine Elgood and she runs a business um, of called Elgo Learning, where she designs management games. You know, when you go to a management training course and you do things with marshmallows and that sort of stuff, she designs those games. So she has a very unusual job. And she told me once, you need a memory hook, you know. So I had this complicated diagram with, with boxes and arrows on it, but not the familiar IA ones that we used to work with, Lou, in the days when we mm-hmm. still did IA. Um, and I thought, I've got to think of a way that I can get my head around this for myself and that I can actually talk to people about it. And I thought and thought, and I thought, oh, hang on a minute. I think there's sort of eight things here. I, I think maybe I should go with an octopus. So I created a sort of Disney-esque, cartoonish, anthrop- you know, representation of total survey error because I needed something in terms that I could understand and that I could convey to other people and so now you'll see my cheery octopus gazing out at you and it it's worked you know when I've tested it with people and said you need to think about all these issues like this and we go through them it's it's not so bad like waving tentacles at people and don't tell me that octopuses don't have tentacles they have legs my octopus is a survey octopus and it has tentacles and so it 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 allowed me to present these really quite tricky concepts in a way that I feel is relatively approachable. And by the end of the book, you're like, oh, okay, now I see how it all fits together. Well, I'm really Um, glad that uh, it's an octopus and a spider. Uh, But what are, can you, can you summarize the eight? Ah, there you go. Now, can I actually remember? Well, it's got like a left half and a right half. And so we start by thinking about goals, why you want to do the survey, um, what's the reason for doing it, and that leads to the questions you ask, and that leads to the answers to those questions, and then finally there's the answers you use, because when people answer surveys, it's not always that you can use every answer, you know, you'll get some uh, facetious answers, you'll get some spam answers, you have to be a bit selective. and then on the right-hand side, we look at, at really what the survey methodologists would call sampling, which is who you want to ask. So we're looking down the right-hand side, we've got the list you sample from or the way you get the people you're going to ask, the sample, who you actually ask out of that list. Mm-hmm. Then you've got the ones who respond from the sample, and then you've got the ones whose answers, responses that you use. because. Sometimes you feel the urge not to use an entire response. You know, you may get, again, sometimes just plain repeated. I mean, sometimes you get two answers that are identical, obviously, by mistake. Other times, again, you may get spam um, responses, so you may not be able to use them. And so those are the, the eight tentacles. And the real difference probably between my diagram and um, the original one is that because I've got them all connected in octopus, you can see that when you look at one area, it sort of affects another, you know? So for example, the questions you ask don't just depend on the reason you're doing the survey. They also depend on who you're asking. You know, if you ask questions that are not meaningful to the people who are going to respond, the people in your sample, they won't want to answer them. They won't respond. You'll get 
worse answers. So they're all somewhat connected. They're Where connected, the they're, are, but they're also like two funnels in a way. They're two funnels and they're kind of connected, mm -hmm. yeah. So it, it's a way of just helping people to get their heads around quite a few fairly complex issues because, as I said before, the survey is not really that easy a method. There are quite a lot of things that you have to think about if you want to do a really good one. Yeah, and, you know, really, you've done a great job of explaining it uh, um, without the visual aid of the octopus. I had it in front of me, and by the way. I know you didn't Did I get anything. it right? You got it. Bingo. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. And you could that kind of description is strong enough that you probably could have gotten away without the, the visual representation of the book. But I, I'm really glad you have it. It's a good shorthand that you return to again and again in the book. Very helpful in that regard. Um, you know, I, I, I'd love to dig a bit more into uh, total survey error, but um, I mean, obviously the book really does that. If anyone wa does want to dig deeper in, you're going to have to pick up a copy of the book as soon as it's out. But the, there's another topic that comes up again and again in survey design. It's probably the, the survey designer's uh, annoyance. It's this, this thing that, that uh, you know, you probably get bugged about a lot, certainly in, in your area of work. And that's the Likert scale, which I know you think it's a Likert scale, but um, um, I, I can't help but think of it as a dislikert scale. So, oh, um, poor, poor Mr. Likert. Why would you call him a Dislikert scale? Nah, it's um, just, they, nobody likes the Likert scale. It's always kind of being mishandled and I don't know. Well, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm overstating it. What, what, what's your thoughts on the, the, no, the Likert I, scale? I, I fully agree with you about Likert scales. I mean, one of the things that the survey purists would tell you as well is that we we very much confuse the Likert scale with the Likert item. So when often people talk about the Likert scale as being the thing that says, you know, um, what did you think of this website? Uh, and you have to choose on a scale from one to five, whether you disliked it or liked it. You know, you get all these things of a scale from one to five. But those little individual items where you get individual statements and the five or seven or three or 100 response points, they're actually Likert items. So mm -hmm. they, they're they individual things. And the Likert scale is where you get a dozen of them that all add up together. So you might have, and the most famous one in user experience is, is probably um, the SUS, the system usability scale, which has got now my brain's gone 12 items about um, usability of websites, for example. But they're everywhere. I mean, these Likert scales are ubiquitous in all sorts of areas of life and um, very much used in medical areas, in personality assessment, you name it. There's mm -hmm. a Likert scale of, you know, between five and 50 items. Um, they're really difficult to construct. They're really difficult to get right. And then inside of them, you've got your Likert items. And these things can just be really boring. I mean, you can get a barrage of them in grids. And uh, one of the statistics which I have found holds pretty well in practice is that generally, if you put a grid in front of people, about 17% of the people answering your survey will drop out immediately um, because they're quite boring to answer. It's like, oh, I've seen a grid. But I strongly agree. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> exactly. And so it's like, I kind of don't do them, um, you know, just 
work a bit harder. But if you have to do them and you really want to do them, I have included a 13 task method of creating a Likert scale. And within that, there's a couple, three tasks about how to create a Likert item, including my handy flowchart of how to choose the number of response points in your Likert item, which is which is probably one of the hottest topics so heavily debated. Um, do you think I should give people a sneak preview of my um, handy flow chart or do you think we should make them buy the book to see it? What well, it um, I'm watching the clock and um, I do think we'll have to just tell them they have to buy your book. And, and by the way, it's it's just around the corner. Uh, summer, gosh, summer gosh, 2021. And I hate to be so mean, but, um, you know, come on, folks. Uh, Caroline's been working on this for a long time. Buy the damn book. It's really good. And I'm Yes, I'm biased, but everyone should, you know, surveys are just, they're, they're part of our work. They're, they're unavoidable. Like them or not, lick them or not, sorry. <laughs> um, it, it, you, you, you need to know the book. You need to know the topic. And so surveys that work should be on your, your shopping list very soon. It'll be available, uh, obviously from rosenfeldmedia.com, but also all the Amazons and Oh, we've got just about every base covered now uh, in our global distribution system, I'm happy to say. Um, Caroline, before we break, I do have uh, a question for you, uh, not necessarily related to surveys or the book, but what's something, someone you'd like to, to shine a little light on for our listeners? Well, that one is is a great question. Thanks for asking. And the thing I'd like to mention is a scheme in the UK, which is called Mentor Black Business. Um, it was set up by Akil Benjamin, who's a very interesting guy. Um, delighted that he's a friend of mine. In response to the terrible events uh, in 2020, um, where we, many of us, were shocked at what we learned about the lives of black people. Um, Akil himself is black, but he was still moved by the events and he decided to establish mentor black business over here um, to put together people who were willing to throw him a little bit of money to help him set it up. And also people who wanted to uh, find ways to connect with people running black businesses, either as, as a mentor. And it's been great. You know, I'm so grateful that I had an opportunity to connect with a business. Um, I'm so much learning so much from that experience. And I'd really recommend that you maybe have a look into it if you're interested in doing that kind of thing. Perhaps there's uh, not appropriate for you mentoring a British business, but maybe you'd like to think about setting something like that up in your neighborhood. That would be really cool. Or indeed, um, if you have some spare cash, uh, loose change after buying my book, or even before, think of throwing something in their pot to help them do more things for black businesses. It's been such a fun thing to be part of. Excellent. Well, thanks for calling out Mentor Black Business as well as uh, mentoring. And thank you for your wonderful work on uh, on your new book. We're so happy that it's uh, about to uh, join the pantheon of Rosenfeld Media Books. And uh, Caroline, Jarrett, thanks again for joining us on the Rosenfeld Review today. Oh, it's been a blast, Lou, and I'm so honored to be part of your author list at last. It's great. Thanks, Caroline. Thanks for listening to the Rosenfeld Review brought to you by Rosenfeld Media. 
If you like our show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. I'd love it if you tell a friend to have a listen and check out our website for over 100 podcasts with other interesting people. You'll find them all at rosenfeldreview.com.